If you've ever felt intimidated by Greek and Roman writers, here's your chance to find out what they're really up to and why they still matter. And there'll be plenty of jokes as Natalie Haynes stands up for the classics. Hello, thank you for coming. Today I would like to talk to you about the Roman satirist Petronius. So, Petronius lived in the first century AD. He is the arbiter elegantiae, the arbiter of what is elegant for Nero. That's Christopher Biggins, if you remember your emperor's... (laughs) The I. Claudius route. I will obviously be allowing those as touchstones throughout. Uh, So, he's the arbiter elegantiae of Christopher Biggins slash the emperor Nero. And uh, his job is to decide what is cool and what is not cool. He is a spectacular snob and incredibly holier than thou, I think, in terms of uh, what's hip and what isn't. And eventually, of course, as so often with people who say that's cool, that's not, that's cool, that's not. He annoys the wrong person. And therefore, in 66 AD, he is accused of treason. Yes, uh, which means that he has to commit suicide. Now I know, because it seems right, like the first century AD especially, is basically one long Kurt Cobain tribute, right? People people are committing suicide about every 20 minutes, so I feel like I should set the record straight, at least a little. If you are accused of, for example, treason, and you kill yourself before you're convicted, then your family are still your heirs. If, on the other hand, you're convicted before you can commit suicide, then your property is taken and divided up amongst your accusers. So, it's a better bet to kill yourself. (laughs) You you may have noticed the already very obvious problem in this, which is that if you own something really nice, there's a little bit of an incentive for somebody to accuse you of treason. And it does happen. A man named Valerius Asiaticus has a very beautiful set of gardens which are coveted, I think, by uh, Messalina, uh, Claudius' third wife, uh, Derek Jacobus' third wife. (laughs) And uh, Valerius Asiaticus' gardens are so beautiful, he's accused of treason because someone's hoping to uh, inherit them when he's eventually put to death. And he commits suicide before they can be taken from him. And this is my absolute favourite thing about him. Before he dies, he asks that they move the funeral pyre because where they've placed it uh, of their own accord, the smoke might damage his trees. That is a gardener, isn't it? Look at that. That is how you know he was a gardener. So Petronius uh, commits suicide in a really quite classy way. He um, slashes his wrists, as people do, and then binds them back up so he can have a bit of a chat and then slashes them again and then binds them back up, but not so he can have a high-minded philosophical conversation like Socrates does on his deathbed. No, so he can exchange lascivious gossip with friends. Uh, Apparently he makes such a detailed dossier of Nero's, let's say, nighttime adventures, because it's for Radio 4, that uh, eventually, once he's dead, I think Nero exiles a woman named, I think, Sylvia, who he thinks must have grasped him up. It's so uh, detailed in its accuracy. My absolute favourite thing about Petronius, if you have to pick one, is that his pretty much final act is he owns a flask, I guess a drinking flask, made out of fluorite. It is a precious stone, semi-precious stone. According to Pliny the Elder, it's worth 300,000 testerces. Now, it's really hard translating money through time. You know how much a pint of milk costs now? People didn't drink lattes then. Difficult. Um, (laughs) But a testerce would probably have bought you two loaves of bread. You could maybe get two loaves of bread for like a pound 50. Obviously, I'm not talking about some fancy sourdough that you might be buying. I'm talking about regular bread. Um, so let's say a sesterce is worth about a pound fifty. So the flask, according to Pliny the Elder, is worth 300,000 sesterces, so 450,000 pounds. Uh, that's how valuable it is. And one of his final acts is to smash it so Nero can't have it. <laughs> 
I wanted to find out how satire was thriving in the modern world, if it is at all. So the best person to talk to was obviously satirist, cartoonist and writer Martin Rosen. Hello! Hello, Natalie. Hooray. Um, Now... I think that satire is an extremely noble tradition and I think it's just possible that you agree with me. Um, I was hoping you might tell me who you think is carrying it on now. Is it comedians or cartoonists? Both? Neither? First of all, I should say that I think satire is coterminous with being both human and alive. But uh, if we didn't have the innate capacity to laugh at people who think they're better than us, but who, like us, both defecate and will die, then we would actually go mad with existentialist disgust. So we need satire. We need satire. Ever since we first developed kings and gods and things like that, we've needed to have the capacity to be able to laugh at them um, and to have that laughter mostly tolerated, which it is mostly tolerated. However, when I look around me at the moment and what I would certainly describe as the most ludicrous government since the coalition of all the talents of 1806, uh, I look on in, in mild despair that the satire isn't there, that the visual satire is there, us cartoonists are having a whale of a time because this is an inherently funny government. Just the circumstances of a coalition are funny. It's like Steptoe and Son. It's like the sort of the, the, the meeting of two unmatchable groups. So, you know, the idea of Vince Cable boiling his socks in the corner of the kitchen in number 11 while uh, George Osborne wanders in with a polo mallet. You know, this is, this is inherently <laughs> funny. Uh, and, and yet, strangely enough... Given the fact that the satire boom of the early 60s probably helped create a whole wave of comedy which swept through into Monty Python, you know, from Peter Cook and so on, I think comedy has actually muscled satire out. That there's too much comedy and not enough satire. Because you now have stadia filled with people telling really rather feeble jokes. But none of them are actually attacking a government which should be like fish in a barrel. It's strange, isn't it? Because I sort of assumed that there was um, a sort of a time for warm, fluffy, observational comedy and stadium comedy, as you say, um, and that that time was when everybody was sort of reasonably happy, that the economy was going reasonably well, everything was reasonably fine. And yes, we had protest gigs uh, about the Iraq war and things like that, but generally everybody was relatively placid. And I sort of assumed when the coalition came in that it would see a huge upsurge in political satire, exactly as has happened the last time there was a Conservative government. hasn't happened at all. And... You could have all sorts of conspiracy theories for that. You could say that, um, you know, the BBC, which has got an utterly noble tradition of encouraging satire, has uh, been so cowed by fear of governments that it doesn't won't do anything. Let's see if that gets into the edit. Um, <laughs> uh, you could you could say that, oh, well, you know, this is the best government ever and so there's nothing to laugh about. Uh, but I do worry, I seriously worry about the fact that David Cameron who has, if you look at him, got one of the most preposterous walks in the Western world, is the first Prime Minister of my lifetime who is not regularly impersonated on TV. He has a very impersonatable voice, because he's a toff trying to sound like he's not a toff. Uh, but nobody does him. Nobody. Is it because he's so bland? No, he's not bland. He is an inherently ridiculous figure, like all of them. Uh, but nobody does him. And why should this be? Petronius wrote the Satyricon, turned into a uh, film by Fellini, and additionally considered incredibly scandalous. It's like a sort of parody of the Odyssey, in which uh, some friends go on an adventure around Italy, but with lots more gay sex than the Odyssey has in it. Um, <laughs> which makes it very scandalous for a very long time. In fact, arch-scarer of horses D.H. Lawrence, no less, said of Petronius, he startled me at first, but I liked him. <laughs> 
So D.H. Lawrence was a fan, but in order to find out how important Petronius' writing was and still is, I talked to Victoria Reimel, Associate Professor of Latin and Latin Literature at the University of Rome. Actual Rome! Well, he's an incredibly important author. The Satyricon is an incredibly important text because nothing quite like this survives from the Roman world. It's the the first substantial novelistic narrative, if indeed it is, uh, we can date it to the Neronian period, and most scholars generally agree that we probably can. And although it does have things in common with other texts, you know, prose fiction, probably later in Greek and Latin, a satire of Seneca, it also stands alone, aesthetically speaking. It's written in a mixture of prose and verse, like Seneca's satire, but also meshes together in an exciting, uh, experimental way, all kinds of different genres, from historiography to love elegy, mime, epic, uh, fable, philosophy, you know, you name it almost, it's in it. So we get an insight into uh, Roman slang, Roman banter, uh, jokes, uh, toilet habits. We get to hear what um, a a drunk might sound like in Latin. (laughs) (laughs) And um, there's all kinds of other details that are fascinating for social historians, historians of the Roman economy, because the freedmen talk a lot about money uh, and trade. The other thing about the Satyricon is that it's a really enigmatic text, right? Not only is the the date still uncertain, the identity of the author is also uh, quite a tantalising mystery. And do you think that this Petronius and glorious suicide in Tacitus Petronius are the same person? I would love to. It's too juicy to <laughs> to ignore as a possibility. And of course, there are, there are various other clues, I suppose, that, that point to an Aronian dating. So I'd really like to think so, definitely. So this probability of this, the same guy also having penned this uh, rather racy bit of fiction opens up a maze of interpretative possibilities, right? So was it a piece of literature designed to please the emperor himself, you know, given that Petronius was apparently Nero's sort of style guru stroke <laughs> personal advisor, he was the arbiter uh, of elegance, or is it some kind of crazy satire on Nero himself, or Neronian Rome more generally, uh, on its literary culture, on sort of pleasure-obsessed, uh, uh, vulgar, morally corrupt nouveau riche, you know, represented by, by Trimalchio, who's the sort of centre uh, character of the, the so-called Feast of Trimalchio, which is the, the, the main bit that people still read. The other reason I think he's important, or the Satyricon is important, is because it's an absolute treasure trove of uh, realistic detail about, well, the seedier side, if you like, of ancient Rome. I do like. Um, That's exactly so, what I mean. <laughs> You know, about the, the lives of educated or not so educated freedmen, not in Rome itself, uh, curiously enough, but in or around the Bay of Naples, which was the sort of elite holiday resort of choice for Romans on the weekends or for uh, pleasure villas and so on. So that gives us a unique perspective. 
The satyricon is broken up and fragmentary. The longest chunk that we really have is the Cana Trimalchionis, the dinner party of Trimalchio, which is a glorious piece of satire. You can see Petronius at his absolute best and worst. He's massively snobbish about Trimalchio. Trimalchio is a self-made man, an ex-slave, a freedman, and they're having this big fancy dinner party and everything is as vulgar as it could possibly <laughs> B. So he is being a massive snob, basically, about self-made people who live in the provinces. But at the same time, our hero, Enculpius, who's very snobbish about Trimalchio, is still taking his hospitality and then sniggering at him. So we're never given you know, a moment to think Petronius doesn't despise his characters, too. Uh, he's just as mean about them in some ways as he is about Trimalchio. So Trimalchio... He's worth 30 million sesterces, as he proudly tells everyone several times. He made it through shipping. He lost it uh, once through a shipwreck. And then his wife, Fortunata, pawned her jewellery, and they built up a 30 million sesterce fortune once again. And the dinner party is horrendous. The vulgarity is absolutely spectacular. So all the servants, all the slaves, sing when they bring anything in, uh, which has really got to get old really fast. And, you know, they might do some acrobatics. The Romans are really big on food which is probably edible, being made to look like it's disgusting. They find that amazing. I think the first dish they're brought out is, it's, uh, it looks like an egg, and uh, Encolpius can't lift his spoon because the silver is so heavy. <laughs> it's such a big, <laughs> vulgar spoon. And eventually, he cracks it open, and then it looks like there's a horrible embryonic bird inside it. But actually, of course, it's a pastry egg. And inside is a fig pecker, a tiny bird, a delicacy. Something delicious made to look like something disgusting. <laughs> it is the Roman way. And then later, the chef comes out, and they, they wheel out a huge pig, um, which hasn't been gutted. I'm vegetarian. This means nothing to me, but I imagine that's a bad thing. Um, and uh, they're about to beat him, and then they slice open the pig. Ah, oh, it's not really not been gutted. It's full of sausages. Mmm. <laughs> And then they bring out 12 dishes that are like the signs of the zodiac, and maybe there's a rabbit that's made to look like Pegasus with wings. It sounds awful. It sounds absolutely awful. And at no point would you want to be at this dinner party. Sometimes I feel like Trimalchio is having a joke at Enculpius' expense, even as Enculpius is sort of mocking him for the reader's benefit. You never quite know whether it's sort of a very sophisticated power play on his part, the entire performance or string of performances that is the banquet. A quantum dinner party that changes every way we look at it. Yeah, well, it's also quite, you know, gets quite psychedelic at some point. Uh, the well, guests yes. are all drunk and Encopius says, you know, I can see the lamps multiplying before my eyes, you know, and it all gets quite surreal. And so do you think this, it's I the Cainatramalchionis which makes us still now think of the Romans, almost always they're twinned with this idea of indulgence, I think, for a modern audience, for everything from yeah. a funny thing happens on the way to the Forum to up Pompeii. A lot of our ideas, it seems to me, of, of ancient Rome are actually further south than Rome, uh, around the Bay of Naples, yeah. and very much full of misbehaving slaves and you know, incredibly rich and vulgar freedmen and generally a sort of a slightly misbehaving holiday town. Yeah, it's interesting that you mentioned the sort of carry-on strand of the modern uh, cinematic and televisual representations of Roman indulgence. Because although you do get that kind of humour in, in the Cainetra Malchionis, for sure, 
there are lots of bawdy moments. It's also, it's what's always seemed to me, a rather dark, uh, satirical kind of representation of Roman indulgence. There's something quite violent about it. Right, this uh, dinner party uh, overseen by the, the tyrant Trimalchio, who's almost force-feeding his guests. There's no real pleasure there, so it's not indulgence as pleasure as hedonism, exactly. It's indulgence that is, it comes to be sort of inseparable from a nasty imperialistic greed and from some kind of almost sadomasochistic violence. So I think that Satyricon does play a really important part in, in that aspect of our idea of, of Roman otium or Roman leisure and indulgence. This is music from Nino Rota's soundtrack for the 1969 Fellini Satyricon, a film which I have to confess I find absolutely baffling. Richard Dyer, who teaches film studies at King's College London and St Andrews, tried to explain it to me. It is an extraordinary film and was sort of very successful in some ways because it was a bit sensational, but also to some extent um, it baffled people because what the hell is going on and all of that. I actually once introduced it at a screening in the National Film Theatre in London and afterwards two people said in my earshot, I'm sure for my benefit, well, that was the most boring film I've ever seen. (laughs) (laughs) Love those armchair critics. (laughs) So helpful and constructive. But it's a strange, dreamlike, sometimes psychedelic film, would you say? Oh, I think it's very much of its time. I mean, I think it's wonderful. I'm not saying that as anything against it. But, you know, I think it is quite sort of hippie, quite sort of alternative. And it's both is about the past, because it's about ancient Rome and so on. But in all sorts of ways that it's done, it is very modern and very of its time. It seems strange to me that people waited so long to film an ancient road movie and then at the same time having once filmed it in 1969, is that right? Yes. No one's touched it since. I think there were two reasons why it wasn't made earlier. One, of course, it's sort of sensational. I mean, it's got, I mean, for its time, it's very daring about sort of gay sex and so on and sex generally. Racy, no uh, less, yeah, I would say. Absolutely. <laughs> uh, and at the same time, of course, it's very fragmentary, the original, and what's I think one of the things Fellini tried to do was reproduce the fragments. It's a road movie. It's not like they're going anywhere. It's road because, you know, they suddenly end up somewhere else. It's very dreamlike, I think. Yes. A bit where, you know, you can't quite work out how you got into this scene. That's and then right. you can't quite work out how you got out of it and into the next one. Absolutely. I mean, some people have said it's like science fiction, which I think is catches it absolutely right. Because in one way, it's so obviously about the past, and yet a lot of the music is electronic. You see people playing instruments. You think, what is that instrument? What can they be playing? I'm not sure I can think of many films which were both so of their own time and of the director's concerns, and yet were also so faithful to their, their original. And I think that faithfulness to the original is what makes it seem so strange because it preserves all those things we can't quite grasp about ancient texts. Yeah, that's really interesting because having not quite been alive uh, when it was made, <laughs> to me the sort of 60s-ness of it seems vastly more alien than the Petronius-ness How of it. How interesting. <laughs> yes, no, I can, I can see that really. And it is that sense of... Um, 
sort of privileged aimlessness. You know, these rather sort of pretty <laughs> young men who don't doesn't really matter whether they do anything or not, and you know, and they drift on to the next thing, and they you know, they always look nicely turned out and so on. It's like an anti Odyssey, isn't it? I can't remember who described it as that. Yes, like with no set. The Odyssey is all the way through. However many adventures they have, there's a through line, which is Odysseus has to get back to Ithaca. That's absolutely right. Yes, <laughs> yes. Satyricon. <laughs> yes. The through line is. <laughs> yes. <laughs> Everyone has to have adventures, but at the the end result is is not never in sight and never being aimed for. Yeah, that, absolutely. That's absolutely right. Tacitus talks about uh, Petronius' downfall, and he says the weird thing about Petronius is everyone else becomes successful through industry, through hard work, industria. But Petronius, through idleness. That's what he's good at. He says he sleeps all day, and then at night he would transact all business and pleasure. Right? But in fact, the life of a satirist could be extremely dangerous. Juvenal preferred to write about dead people. Petronius goes for the living, but disguises them in thinly fictionalised form. But it cost him his life. And in some parts of the world, satire is still a dangerous business. Martin Rosen. There was a cartoonist in Iran last year who drew a local politician who just bought a football team and was very pious. He drew him kicking a football around, but with a mark in the middle of his forehead, which marks that he goes to prayer five times a day. And uh, this guy arraigned the cartoonist in front of a Islamic court and had him sentenced to 50 lashes. We then set up an international outcry and he, and he said, don't carry out the sentence. But the sentence was was imposed on him, um, but he didn't get the lashes, thank God. In this country, we've had it too easy. We've, we've had over 300 years of... Um, licensed or tolerated visual satire of the kind I do, where I actually draw the leaders of the country in the most disgusting ways imaginable. So uh, would there be more of you if you were more likely to get sentenced to 50 lashes? It seems terrible, doesn't it, that the bravery happens <laughs> in countries where there's a lot at stake yeah. and doesn't happen here. Are we um, too comfy? Uh, well, maybe we are. I mean, and, but, you know, the, the, the best way for politicians in this country to deal with the kind of thing I and my visual satire satirist colleagues do is just to pretend it's all just jolly good fun isn't the only person who's ever really attributed their downfall to satire i think it's probably david Steele, wasn't it because he said that uh, spitting image which had made him tiny and to fit in the pocket of his coalition colleague yeah, yeah, yeah. david Owen, he said it'd just stop people taking him seriously ever again but i think mostly people are unwilling to give that kind of power to their yeah, well he um yes he made the great mistake of, uh, of saying it out loud yes and it's interesting i, I have a sort of weird probably rather self-serving theory about this, that if you look at the last four Prime Ministers prior to Cameron, John Major and Gordon Brown both reacted to the cartoons. John Major was once asked in an interview what he thought of Steve Bell drawing him with his underpants on the outside and replied rather magnificently, I pay no attention to it whatsoever. It is merely an attempt to destabilise my government, which meant you knew he was crying himself to sleep about it. And why not? It was a pretty unpleasant thing to do. Uh, and that's why it was so effective and that's why it's so funny as well, because we are playground bullies, essentially. And Gordon Brown once said to me, when I, just before the 97 election, I asked him a, a rather detailed question about economic policy, and he replied, why do you always draw me so fat? To which I replied, because you are fat, Gordon, and he made his excuses and left. They were both failures as Prime Ministers. I think history will be kinder to them than their contemporaries were. (laughs) Than I have been, yeah. But Blair and Thatcher both ignored the cartoons, paid no attention to them whatsoever. And it's actually in Alistair Campbell's diaries, 1996, Blair, he describes going into Blair's office in Westminster, and Blair, who's a notorious technophobe, was trying to use the computer. And I said, what are you doing, boss? I said, you know, hey, I'm just, you know, writing to complain about this, this disgraceful cartoon in The Guardian, which I'm very happy to say was by me. <laughs> well done. And Campbell was very good at his job and said, don't do that. If you complain about a cartoon, they'll think you're a nutter. 
and we would have done. We would have been on him like a pack of velociraptors. We'd have drawn him as Mickey Mouse. We'd have done him as a sort of cartoon character, cartoon cuts forever. And um, as a consequence, he paid no attention to it. Now, both Thatcher and Blair, because they didn't have that person like the slave in ancient Rome to get back to uh, what you're talking about here, whispering in their ear, not only you are mortal, but also you've got really stupid ears, which is what we do. Uh, they paid no attention to that. So after a while, they believed the yes people surrounding them. They believed, you know, Blair has said over and over again about Iraq, which is, the, you know, the greatest foreign policy disaster this country has been through since Suez. But I thought I was right, as if that makes it all right. Yes. It doesn't make it all right. You were wrong. You won't admit it. You're delusional. And both of them had to be removed from office by their own side. They weren't voted out. Which is a very Roman way to do things. Which is very Roman way, yeah. Because because they become a danger to their parties and a danger to their country. So they both had to be got out because they weren't listening to the background whinging of the satirists. So, see, this chimes in very beautifully then with the fact that Petronius is made to commit suicide in um, the first century and he has obviously thrived under and then upset in some manner Nero, who, of course, by 68, his whole career has fallen apart you know everyone's revolting they're revolting everywhere they're revolting in britain etc and perhaps if he'd listened a bit longer and spent a bit less time forcing well, petronius i mean yeah, this is the thing you see the, the, the satire is a is hard wired into us to stop us going mad so it's, it's very good for the consumers of satire because it makes them laugh that releases all those lovely endorphins that makes them feel better but it's also good for the satirized because it actually does stop the pressure cooker building up and is the main ambition of satire to be funny or to be angry? It's, it's to be both. I am angry enough to realise that the most effective weapon available to me is to laugh at them. I look with slight despair when my uh, cartooning colleagues accept MBEs and things like that. And I have, I'll state it once more on the public record, the only honour I'd ever accept from the state would be an hereditary dukedom. <laughs> Six million acres of central London as its seigneurial lands. <laughs> Dinner parties are a massive feature of Roman life and of Roman satire, actually. There's a Horace, one of the very earliest satires, is about a dinner party. Juvenal has the most brilliant satire on a really, really awful dinner party. Actually, I think the best story about any dinner party doesn't come satirically, though. It comes really unexpectedly, um, in uh, Seneca's On Anger, a very serious uh, philosophical work, and he tells us about what sounds to me like the absolute worst dinner party of all time as a, a moral message, and that is a dinner party held by Vedius Pollio. Vedius Pollio invites the Emperor Augustus to his house for dinner, and Vedius Pollio is very rich, and he has a very, very valuable set of glasses, uh, which he wants to show off to the Emperor, and so his slave boy uh, is taking Augustus's drink, and he drops the glass, and it smashes, because that's what happens with glass. And and uh, Vedius Pollio is so angry, remember this is a philosophical treatise on anger, that he uh, decides that the boy should be fed to his pond of man-eating lampreys. Now, <laughs> if this sounds at all familiar to you, you're probably thinking of Blofeld, <laughs> in You Only Live Twice, who feeds Helga Brandt to his pond of woman-eating piranhas. <laughs> I'm just saying that generally when you keep a pond of man-eating fish in your house to eat henchmen and servants, 
maybe there's something going a little wrong. Um, <laughs> the little boy is so horrified at the thought of being eaten alive that he runs over to the Emperor Augustus, Brian Blessed, and he begs, I think this is incredibly revealing, not for his life, because he knows in a world of slavery his life is literally worth less than the glass he's just broken. He doesn't beg for his life, he just begs not to be eaten alive by eels because he's frightened. And the Emperor Augustus, according to Seneca, is so shocked by Vedius Pollio's cruelty that he orders that the pond be filled in and the boy be set free, and that every one of Vedius Pollio's glasses be smashed before his eyes. <laughs> to teach him a lesson. I should tell you that the first time I told my mum that story, she said, oh, not the glasses. <laughs> uh, that is all I have to tell you on the subject of Petronius. Natalie Haynes' Stands Up for the Classics is produced in Bristol by Christine Hall.